Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Just a moment, a couple things while you're turning there. Uh, one is uh, happy row is in the dust weekend. It is something to celebrate. Yes. It's something to celebrate. More prayer that is needed, but there is something to celebrate. Uh, next, um, you may have noticed that uh, I have gotten us uh, in the midst of um, a debate uh, in our uh, community around us, to say it uh, lightly, with a letter. Uh, that myself and then the, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church up in Jasper, uh, his name is Joe Helt. He is a friend of this church. A uh, letter that we sent to the papers there. Uh, you may have noticed that our website uh, is currently down. Uh, the uh, leftist haters uh, attacked our website. Uh, it is currently offline. They searched through online information, uh, even f looking through old videos and things that we had to find the names of members in order to harass members of the church. Uh, some here, but more actually up at the church in Jasper, uh, even finding the businesses associated with members of the church in order to harass uh, members there. So there has been uh, a great deal of hate has been thrown our way, the, especially this weekend uh, as the Pride Fest uh, took place up in Jasper this weekend. The name of this church body, your, your church family, uh, the name was maligned, insulted, and degraded a great deal. Blessed are you. Our Lord Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they treated the prophets who were before you. Every, every time your name is maligned for the sake of Christ, there is more reward in the kingdom of heaven. Do not let that discourage you. Only let, let it show you, apparently we're dropping bombs in the right places if we're getting that much flack. Blessed are you. Uh, one good thing coming up is uh, the tech guys had already been working on a new website, actually, to be launched here very soon. So this just moves it up a little bit, and that will be coming very soon. Well, let's turn to our text, Romans chapter 12. Uh, where we are in our study is we're, gonna, we're ready to study the, the last half of uh, verse 10 and then all of verse 11, but those exhortations there. But for the sake of context, I'll back us up to verse 9 to read down through 13, as this is a section. So begin with me in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Please pray with me. Our God in heaven, we ask, O oh Lord, that you will have mercy on us. Lord, it, it saddens us as we see our, our culture 
crumbling as it walks away from biblical truth and even just plain common sense objective truth. But Lord, we're also grieved as we see many who profess the name of Christ compromising and cowering and walking away from your truth in, in shame. Lord, we do not know what you're going to do in these next years and decades, but we know you always keep a remnant. And we pray, O oh God, that you will strengthen and embolden churches to produce generations of disciples. And we ask, O oh God, that we would be among them. We ask, O oh God, that you will do something special here. We ask that you will strengthen us. We pray that we will not only continue to believe your word, but defend your word, preach your word to be the pillars and support of the truth that you tell us the church is supposed to be. We ask, O oh God, that you will strengthen our hands for the fight, that you will embolden us, O oh God, and stir us with courage and zeal and fervent hearts that want to raise our families in a way that pleases you, that want to speak your name with boldness, that want to love and show mercy and do all of this in ways that are humble and kind and gracious, ways that are Christ-like, but to clearly and boldly proclaim your truth. So we ask, oh God, that you will enable us to do that. And the very scriptures we're looking at this morning call us to diligence and fervent labor in our serving of your kingdom. And so I, I pray, oh God, that you will use this time for that end. So help us as we study your word. We pray that you send your spirit. Please bless our little ones in the next room, that they will learn your word, that they will rejoice in Christ, that they believe the gospel. And we pray, oh Lord, for us here. I, I need your help. I pray even physically speaking, you will enable me to be able to preach your word. Help me to do so in a way that is useful and helpful and help all of us, oh God. We've come uh, to meet with you, bow before you. So we pray, help us to worship as we receive your truth and believe it and intend to obey it. So please bless this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When David was a young man, he visited the fields of battle one day when Israel was at war with the Philistines. And when he came to the battlefield there, he was chided by his brothers and others for being curious and asking questions. He was just a young man. He had not yet accomplished anything noteworthy. And so when he came to the battlefield there, he received no honor. There was no respect that was given to him. In fact, he received some dishonor from his brothers. But then came that moment where he faced off against Goliath and then he walked off of the field of battle holding the head of his enemy and little parenthesis there, don't ever leave that part out when you're telling the story. Um, there's a reason why it's in the Bible. And one of the reasons why we in the church in America are in the anemic and sissified place that we are is because there is so much leaving out of places, things like that from the scriptures. In parenthesis, coming back to the story, when David walked off of the field of battle holding the head of his enemy, at that moment, Israel began to give him honor. Uh, within their own hearts, they began to esteem him highly, and then they expressed it uh, outwardly. Even his brothers began to look at him in a different kind of way. They gave him honor everywhere that he went. David began to be treated with honor. 
And I tell that story to demonstrate two different kinds of honor that were shown in Scripture. There is honor that is acquired, meaning it has been earned by accomplishing something valiant and noteworthy. But there's also an honor that is ascribed, meaning that it is given, it is granted, even if the person has not accomplished anything valiantly. We are commanded in Scripture, for instance, that to those who hold legitimate positions of authority, we are to ascribe honor to them. We are to give honor even if they have not accomplished something valiant. And I bring all of that up to, to make this clear, this distinction between them, to realize that in this text, when Scripture tells us as believers, those who are followers of Christ, that we are to show honor and give honor to one another in the body of Christ, it is an honor that is an ascribed honor, even if it has not been earned by the believer. That's not only a specific instruction in verse 10 that you see there in the instruction to give preference to one another in honor, but that's also something that sums up in a helpful way a lot of these exhortations that we're seeing in verses 9 through 13, that there's a different kind of way that we are to love the people of God. There is a different kind of way that we are to serve one another who are in the body of Christ. We're in a section here where we're seeing our responsibilities uh, to love and serve one another in the body of Christ um, in verses 3 through 13 there. And if you're just joining us and uh, not been with us for a while, we've, we've made mention of this already. I'll just remind you, though. Um, we're not yet to the section where we're being told how we are to treat our neighbor and how we are to treat our enemy. That's coming later in the chapter. The section we're in right now is specifically about how we are to love and serve one another in the body of Christ, and most especially within the, your local church family there. The justified people of God who are following Christ, how we are to treat one another. We are to be devoted to one another. We are to give brotherly love to one another. We are to give preference to one another. We are to show honor to one another. And we've, we've covered uh, four of these exhortations so far. In 9 through 13, there's 13 of them quickly rattled off. We've covered four. Today we pick up in number five, and I'm also intending to look at number six, seven, and eight as we work through the end of verse 10 and through verse 11 there. So there's four exhortations we're intending to cover today. Let's begin with this fifth one here. You see it at the end of verse 10, give preference to one another in honor. Now, if you've got a different translation on your lap, you, you may notice that uh, some of the different English translations word this kind of differently. And the reason why is uh, the, the word for preference in the Greek there, it's a difficult word to translate. And this is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. So I've got the New American Standard here, and it reads, give preference to one another in honor. If you've got the ESV on your lap, it says, outdo one another in showing honor. If you've got an NIV, at least the one that I looked at, the version there, honor one another above yourselves. So you, you can hear some difference in the language, but it is still clear what it is saying. We still know the, same, the, the message that it is 
preaching. I'll, I'll start with this section here on honor. To give honor means to give high esteem to someone. So it is an affection of the heart and then something that is to be demonstrated, but this is not like the tender love that you give to a baby. This is the respect-filled esteem of uh, holding someone in an elevated position, uh, elevated in the heart, and then we demonstrate it. I, I use the example of David in the introduction to distinguish between acquired honor and ascribed honor and see that we're being called here in this verse that as believers, we are to grant honor, give honor to one another, even if this is a new believer and has not accomplished anything noteworthy, no great acts of obedience yet, no great acts of valor yet, we are to give honor to one another as fellow believers in Christ. Our Lord Jesus is exalted above all. We give him honor above all. You'll never forget in the uh, story of David there, when you read it and you're trying to see what am I supposed to take away from it, never forget in the story, you're not David, okay? Well, you read that story, you're not David, okay? Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the one who has faced our great enemy. Jesus has marched off of the field of battle, holding the head of his enemy. We elevate, we honor him above all, but this king tells all of us, his people, I want you to show honor to all of the others that I purchased with my blood. So as followers of Christ, there is to be a way that we show love and honor to one another that is even higher than, than uh, the courtesy, for instance, that we treat, we are to treat all people. We give honor to one another before there is even anything that is accomplished. We give, we give to one another the honor of those who will reign with Christ for eternity. Christian, we may not look like much now, but when you look in the face of another believer, you are looking at someone who is going to live forever. When you look at another Christian, someone who has been bought by the infinitely valuable blood of Christ, you are looking at someone who is seated in the heavenly places. You are looking at someone who will reign with Christ, who will judge angels in the ages to come. If we could see one another right now of who we will be when we are glorified and in that kingdom of heaven, there would be a kind of awe. There would be a special kind of way that we looked at one another seeing what God is making us to be. Our Savior says, go ahead and treat one another like that now. There is an honor that we are to give to one another as those who are sons and daughters of the Most High. And, and, and if you're here and you have not yet turned to Christ to be saved uh, maybe you have just sort of taken religion kind of lightly, but mostly just not been paying much attention. If you have not yet believed in Christ, knowing that you must be saved and looking to him in order to be, you know, I, I, it doesn't give me pleasure to say this. This is not intention to be mean or anything, but I, you do need to know where you stand. And this is the warning that scripture gives. You are not yet among this group. 
you will also exist forever, but you will not live forever in the kingdom of heaven unless you turn to Christ and trust in him. You, you will forever exist, but you will be an object of God's anger and not welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. But Christ invites you and calls you to come and join the kingdom of heaven by trusting in him to be saved. Those who are in Christ are the ones who get honor. And then some, someone might ask, well, pastor, I mean, you're talking about this honor. Shouldn't we just show honor to everybody, you know, even unbelievers? And the answer is, well, no, not exactly. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Scripture shows that we are to show courtesy. There is a way we are to love our neighbor. There is a way that we are to demonstrate love to the stranger in our midst. There's a way that we are to demonstrate love to our enemies. So, so don't misunderstand. We are to do those things. There is a courtesy we are to give as people made in the image of God. But what the text is showing, the whole point of honor is that it is elevated above something. Honor is elevated above average, normal. We believers are to show an honor to one another in a way that is elevated above. I, I think that's why... The New American Standard, uh, the, the version that I read out of, I, I, I think this is a helpful way of wording it. Give preference to one another in honor. Yes, there is to be a way that we prefer the company of the people of God over those who are in rebellion to God. In Galatians 6 verse 10, it, it says this, let us do good to everybody especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do you, do you hear that word, especially? What is that? There is a greater obligation, a greater responsibility that we who are in Christ have to show honor to one another and to do good. There is an especially-ness. So let us show preference to one another in honor. Here's the sixth exhortation in the text. If you look at verse 11, it says, not lagging behind in diligence. And then also notice about the text that the, the, the three phrases, the three exhortations that come in verse 11, they're all connected together. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Um, your, your translation there may have in the list of 13 exhortations, many of them may have a semicolon after them. These three ought to have a comma after them showing that there is a way that they are linked. Our understanding of one uh, leads us to the understanding of the others there. But I am just for now going to take the lagging behind in diligence. Now, let, let me remind you as well about these exhortations in the list that do not immediately appear to be concerning how we are to love and serve one another. Here, here's what I mean. We've said that this section of verses 3 through 13 is all about Christians, how we are to love and serve one another in the body of Christ. But some of these exhortations, like the ones in verse 11, they don't immediately seem to pertain to loving and serving one another. It seems more of a matter of just personal obedience, like not lagging behind in diligence, be fervent in spirit. It doesn't immediately appear that that's about loving and serving one another. But I want to remind you what we have said throughout this, and I do believe that this is intentional. By God's design, Jesus has made the church to be like a body. He could have made it a lot of different ways, but he made us to exist like a body. And in a body, what one member does 
affects all of the other members. What happens to one influences, inspires, or discourages the others. And with these exhortations that don't immediately appear to pertain to how we love and serve one another, I think one of the points of the text is it does affect one another because we are in the same body. And to show you an example of that, that I'm not just like trying to stretch for things here, that I think this is intentional, turn over to the book of Philippians with me for a moment. And we have an example here of a time of these three specific things uh, listed in verse 11 of a way that it did influence the rest of the body. In Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read 12 through 14. This is the Apostle Paul, same guy writing Romans, inspired by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Start with me in verse 12 there, Philippians 1, 12. So he says this. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances. And the circumstances he's referring to there is he got the tar beat out of him and put in prison for preaching the gospel. Those are the circumstances he's referring to. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. How, Paul? How is getting beat and put in prison furthering the cause of the gospel. It seems like maybe that would slow the spread. How does it further it? Verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So do you see what Paul says there? Okay, what he says is my diligence and fervent labor, Paul's obedience unto pain led him to be beat and put in prison. But people saw that example and they were emboldened by the fervent spirit, the diligence and the serving of the Lord. They were emboldened by Paul's sacrifice and they were inspired to then go do likewise. That's what he's saying there. The cause of the gospel is actually expanding because I was put in prison because other people have seen this. I think that this is intentional back in Romans chapter 12, that the intention here is saying something just like that. That even in these matters of personal obedience to God, that we are affecting one another. Christian, your personal obedience your personal growth, your personal work to become more Christ-like. Yes, first and foremost, it's a matter of personal obedience to God. But you also need to know your brothers and sisters in Christ need this. And you are loving and serving the body of Christ by even you personally growing. There are a great many parts of the Christian life that are caught more than taught. Meaning, we need to see the examples lived out. It's one of the reasons why the Bible has so much biography. Why, you, why not only we have instruction, we need that, we need instruction. We also need to see David's courage and Abraham's faith. And we're shown these things in scripture. So I, I believe this is intentional in Romans 12. All of these things still do apply to loving and serving one another in the body of Christ. And so let's consider these, these here. We're told 
not to lag behind in diligence. A more literal reading rendering would be something like in the diligence, not being lazy, not being idle. To say it in some other ways, we are not to be slack. We are not to be lazy. We are to put our hand to the plow and work. We are not to be idle. And you know, what the Bible has to say on idleness is a word that our day desperately, desperately needs to hear. I mean, it's applicable in every day. We get that. But, but there's a special way in a day that has so much money and so much time available. We need a word on idleness. And I, I get it that immediately you could be thinking, well, pastor, you don't know my schedule. You don't understand how busy I am. Okay, yes, but part of the point that I'm making is in our very affluent days, we fill our time with things we decide to fill our time with. Like I'm not aware of anybody in the congregation who regularly mills their own grain to make flour in order to make their bread. You hear what I'm saying? Okay. We have microwaves and ovens and, and these kinds of things. We make a lot of decisions based on the fact that we have these vast amounts of time available. And, and what the Bible has to say on this topic is desperately needed because you know, one of the most common ideas of today is so long as I'm not hurting anybody, I'm being good. And then maybe the more, the more Christian version, the more churchy version of that would be so long as I'm not actively breaking any commandments, well, then I'm, I'm being good. So pastor, when I get off work, I go home and I watch four or five hours of TV and that keeps me out of trouble. You know, so I'm being good kind of thing. So, so I'm being good so long as I'm not actively breaking commandments. But listen, not if we've been hired to work. Not if we have been commissioned to bear fruit and to maximize the fruit we bear for the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what we've been called to in scripture. At the, at the commissioning that God gave at creation in Genesis 1, and then again at the, uh, at the beginning of the new covenant, the great commission that Jesus gave, in both of those places, we, his people, have been commissioned to work and bear fruit. That's our purpose. Bear fruit. And every day is an opportunity to be bearing more fruit. It's not just don't rob banks and then you'll be a good Christian. No, you plant an apple tree because you want apples. And if the apple tree just sits and soaks up the sun, doesn't slap the other trees around it, but just won't bear fruit, that still doesn't mean it's a good apple tree. You cut that apple tree down. And this is exactly what Jesus has said concerning the vine, the fig tree, all of these metaphors that he's given. We have been created and commissioned to bear fruit, and we are not to be lax in that. We are to put our hands to the plow and work. But now another question of the text to help us understand this here. What exactly is the exhortation calling us to? Be diligent in what? Because I'll also remind you another way we can get life wrong. We can get life wrong by being really diligent, but in things that don't matter. A great temptation is to become very skilled, but in stuff that is worthless, stuff that in the end, it's, it's just going to burn. It, it has no lasting value. That also is getting life wrong. So what, are, what, what kind of diligence are we being called to? You know, because some possibilities. Is this saying 
that we are to do our daily work. So if you have a job or if you're caring for babies, uh, the, the homemaking, that kind of thing, our daily output of work, is it saying we're to be diligent in that? Is this a call to spiritual diligence? Oh, or is this just kind of in general saying, if you play a sport, make sure you're diligent. If you're playing Scrabble, make sure you like really grunt and play Scrabble like really hard, like really be diligent, that kind of thing. What kind of diligence are we being called to here? Well, other parts of the Bible will speak to our daily work and tell us to work hard. Wednesday nights, we're working through the book of Proverbs right now. This is all through the book of Proverbs. Put your hand to the plow, uh, work wisely, work hard, that kind of thing. And then there are some general places in scripture that tell us to do what we do with excellence in the name of Christ, to give an appropriate amount of effort, appropriate amount of effort into certain things, to give excellence. But that's not what Romans 12, 11 is addressing. The specific context, if you look at this passage, what is it addressing? It's pretty clear. It is addressing specifically our diligence in seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is diligence in the laboring for the building of the body of Christ, the laboring in the fields of the gospel, all of the ways that we expand the rule of the kingdom of God, all of those ways that we feed the hungry, adopt the, need, adopt the children, uh, care for the needy, it is all expanding the rule of the kingdom of God. We are to apply diligence in all of these ways. So we are called to work, to strive, to labor, to push. This is important. If you think this is like overly obvious, it's not as obvious as you may think. So sometimes people get the idea that the Christian life is, is like this. You do what you want. Make sure you don't rob no banks. Okay. Got that covered. Don't, don't, don't you be actively breaking commandments, but you do what you want, stay out of trouble, and then you're okay. That is not the Christian life. It, it, the Christian life is not just do what you want, and then when hard things come down the pike that you can't help, make sure you handle them well. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is not passive. The Christian life is to be actively engaging planning, thinking, spending sleepless nights in prayer, uh, gi giving hours of time to looking at how do we address this need? How do we serve the kingdom of God? How do I leverage the talents God gave me for the maximum amount of uh, fruit output uh, for the kingdom of God? The, the, the whole concept of let go and let God. There are times where that kind of thing can apply. It does not apply to the labor of the kingdom and to our sanctification. Sanctification is that work of growing in Christ, growing in knowledge and growing in godliness. It doesn't apply there. You know that the Bible calls us at times to wait on the Lord. That's a phrase that is repeated in the Bible. We need to know when we're supposed to wait on the Lord and when we're supposed to stand up and start working. Okay, wait on the Lord is a biblical call when it's things like we are praying for something that I can't accomplish. You're praying for healing, wait on the Lord. You're praying and, and waiting for God to deliver you from some trial, wait on the Lord. But wait on the Lord is not the instruction when it comes to work for the kingdom of God and engage in effort for personal growth in holiness. 
And we need to hear this. We need to hear this because one of the things you'll notice as you're a Christian for a long time is there is a lot of bad advice that passes around amongst church folks sometimes. Bad advice that sounds spiritual, but it's not biblical. Let me give you an example. Concerning parenting, maybe you've heard something like this. Maybe you've heard somebody say something like, you know, I've known terrible families whose kids got saved. I've known devout families and some of the kids fell away. You know, in the end, you just, you just do the best you can and you just trust the Lord. Now, one of, the, one of the reasons why that is terrible advice, okay, is uh, with that phrase there, do the best you can, is almost always stated by somebody not doing the best they can. It's one of my pet peeves. Okay, doing the best you can means you don't sleep. Okay, doing the best you can means you bleed. Okay, it means you, you work till you pass out, wake up, have some coffee, get going again. That's doing the best that you can. Look at some of the reformers of history who work themselves into early death. Okay, they still would say, I could have pulled another all-nighter, okay? That's doing the best that you can. But coming back to this kind of flippant, just sort of glossing, spiritual sounding, just, just trust the Lord, that is terrible advice. That is not the biblical call. The biblical call is that we are to sweat and agonize and labor and plan, and we gotta get the idea out of our heads that if something is God's will, then it's gonna go easily. That is an unbiblical idea, okay? So sometimes people, you know, they start to go into a ministry and they're like, well, it got hard, so I knew it couldn't have been God's will. No, what it probably means is you started to make some traction and Satan noticed you and started trying to steer you away, okay? If it gets hard, that doesn't mean it's not God's will. If you, if you drop dead, okay, that's when God says, don't quit, quit working, okay? Uh, that's whenever you can't keep going, all right? But when something gets hard, that doesn't mean it's not God's will. We are to push. We are to work. We are to sweat. This is what we're shown in Scripture. But that kind of flippant, just glossing it over of, you know, I'll just do the best you can, trust God. It gets applied to all kinds of things. People apply it to their personal growth. Ah, oh, you know, that's in God's timing. People apply it to missions and evangelism. Ah, oh, God will bring people there if He wants them. He don't need me. That's missing the point. We can never say this about good deeds, about works for the kingdom of God. The amount of effort that we are willing to put into any endeavor is indicative of the value we believe it has. And scripture tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, the provisions of life will be added to you. God expects us to put in an effort for the things of the kingdom that is worthy of the gospel. And then we're shown examples in the Bible. We're shown Jesus, who at times would spend entire nights in prayer in preparation for the next big work. Um, and if you say, well, that's not fair, that's Jesus. Oh, okay, we'll consider others. Look at the example of the apostles, and they were the model set for us to go and imitate. Um, over in 2 Corinthians 11, there's a little section there where Paul is talking to that church, 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24. Listen to a bit of a recollection of some of the things that Paul had endured. Verse 24, he says, five times I received from the Jews the 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys 
in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without cold food, in, hung, in cold and exposure, excuse me. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Be glad Paul did not give up the first time he was shipwrecked. Be glad Paul kept pushing. Be glad Paul kept working. All of that eventually led to the gospel coming to this place and you and I hearing the message of salvation. This is the model we're given. This is what we are shown. As you look at church history, and it is one of the things we're doing in Sunday school, it's a little bit of an odd study. We're just taking a brief season here to look at that church history because there's certain truths of the Bible that are demonstrated uh, when you see uh, Jesus working to build his church in church history. We'll, we'll come to some points there where we'll look at times of revival, awakening, uh, times where the gospel uh, pushed in great movements. And it is a fascinating thing to study what are the human means that God used in order to bring about revival, awakening, and the building of his church in new places? It's a fascinating study, and there are some things that you can always see present. Here are three things you will always see present every time you see one of these in, in church history. Number one, uh, believers fervently praying. Not just little 10-minute prayers. We're talking fervent prayer. Number two, preachers ferociously preaching the word of God. And number three, the people of God diligently working. Diligently working. Jonathan Edwards would sometimes put in 17-hour study days. Charles Spurgeon would often sleep less than four hours a night, working himself uh, into exhaustion. John Calvin, Martin Luther, other reformers died early deaths because they worked themselves into early deaths. This is the way of the kingdom. So many stories of missionaries from history are accounts of facing really complex problems, trying to sail oceans in order to find remedies for problems in order to bring the gospel, but not giving up, but enduring, enduring, working, taking the next step. And then eventually after two decades, then comes this fruit. The, the example we are given is that of labor. We are to labor. We're not to lag behind in diligence. So Christian, let's not be idle. Let's give an effort that is worthy of the gospel. And instead of being idle, instead of being lazy, let us, next exhortations, look at verse 11. I'm going to take seven and eight together. Be fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. Fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. The word fervent means to boil, literally. It carries the idea of being hot or even a glowing, metal that is glowing in a forge. So to be fervent means to be boiling over for something. And again, just like with diligence, just being fervent uh, in, it, in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing because we can be boiling over with lots of things. We can be boiling over with unrighteous anger. We can be boiling over with a right kind of anger. 
We could be boiling over with competitiveness over a game of checkers, okay? We can be boiling over with a lot of things. So just being fervent in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing. The question is, is it directed towards what honors God, towards that which glorifies God? To be fervent for what is right, this is a good and beautiful thing. We're told to be fervent in spirit. That's talking about our spirit, so our human spirit. So this is speaking of zeal. This is a call to be zealous for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God. This is a zeal that can manifest itself in, in lots and lots of different individual ways. So when someone is zealous for uh, the gospel going to uncontacted tribes and peoples, if someone is zealous for children to be adopted, someone is zealous for uh, needy to be fed, they, they can be zealous for a specific thing, but it is ultimately about the kingdom of God because these are the ways we spread the rule of the kingdom of God. We are to be hot, boiling over for the things that matter. You know, the Bible uses the imagery of hot, cold, and lukewarm. When it comes to faith, worship, joy, love, zeal. If someone's faith goes cold, this is talking about someone who maybe has walked away from the faith or maybe a genuine believer, but who has fallen into such a, a, a abysmal state in their walk with Christ that there's just only one little bitty ember of the fire that is left. This is growing cold. You know, the Bible also speaks of growing lukewarm. You, you probably remember those chilling words. Um, in the letter to the church at Laodicea that Jesus sent, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, they're the seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus wrote. And the last of the letters, Jesus writes to the church at Laodicea and he says, you're neither hot nor cold. I, I wish you were one or the other, but you're just lukewarm. And because of that, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. What, what, what does Jesus think? of a lukewarm kind of just generic existence of nod your head that you agree with Christianity, but are not actively following? What does Jesus think? He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That, that is a call that, that, that tells us God's expectations. We are obviously not to be cold, but, but lukewarm is not okay either. And, and, and we go back to this, a lot of times people think, well, so long as I'm not hurting anybody, I'll, I'm fine. No, we are called to use this one precious God-given life for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God, for the bearing of fruit. That requires zeal. We are to be fervent. Being lukewarm towards the kingdom of God. Number one, it's insane. If we could see it from the perspective of the day of judgment, it's insane. How, how can you be indifferent? We are literally talking about hell and the kingdom of heaven. You can't be indifferent about that. To be indifferent about that is to be unbelieving. Okay, to be indifferent is, it is just an insane perspective. It's just not thinking. If we think for five minutes on eternity, zeal, will come, some sort of fervency of life. This matters. This has gravity, this has weight. This is what the cosmos is about. We're told to be fervent. 
And it might seem obvious, but again, it's not as obvious as you may think. Notice that we are told to have this. Sometimes people think that if they are zealous or not, they can't help it. Like it's out of my hands. You, you've maybe heard people say the excuse of, well, I can't help how I feel. That is an unbiblical idea. All throughout the Bible, we are told certain feelings, emotions, passions within the heart that we are to purge out of it, okay? Like hatred. But then we're also told certain affections, emotions, feelings that we are commanded to have. The Bible shows that we are to lead our emotions, not be controlled by our emotions, okay? Now, usually it is the case, usually, not always, Usually it is the case that if we have some ungodly passion in our heart, that it's not just like, okay, now it's gone, but we can lead our emotions. We are not to be controlled by them. And we are to have zeal and fervency for the service to the Lord and in in the kingdom of God. So if we ask the question then, all right, well, how do I do this? If I am told to be fervent, How am I actually to do this? How do we make that happen? Well, we do recognize that some people are more naturally inclined toward this, and so this comes easier to them. But this is still the case that even uh, the, the one who struggles the most, this exhortation is still given to every one of us. So how do we do it? At its most basic level, it is helpful to know this. It requires work. It requires effort. And it often requires dying to our fleshly desires in order to have zeal. The thing about fire is the fire dies down when the fuel is burned up. You want the fire to keep going, you keep putting on the fuel. You keep putting on the wood to keep it going. And so scripture shows us how it is we stir our affections. We're shown examples of David strengthening himself in the Lord. We're shown in the Psalms, the psalmist reasoning with himself to come out of despair and into hope. Once again, all of this is similar kinds of instructions that we are given. We have to keep stacking on the fuel, the spiritual disciplines, personal, family, corporate worship, the gathering with God's people, the participation in the ordinances, the the reading of sermons, the uh, singing of hymns, all of these ways that we worship, all of these ways that we seek the face of God, all of this is designed, yes, first and foremost, it exalts the name of God. And that's the first importance and first significance. But God has also designed it that it has the effect of transforming us. It has the effect of building the fire of worship And the fires of worship lead to the fires of zeal in our soul. Sometimes what this looks like is, I'm in a bad mood and I'd like to stay there. And the effort is, get over this idiot, I say to myself. It's, it's, we have grudges, we have bitterness, we have anger. And you know how it gets sometimes in the flesh. Sometimes we just want to hang on to it because coming into this virtue is a tough thing. But the effort is praying, working, thinking, convincing myself, struggling to come out of the bad attitude and into the light. This is the dying to the flesh that is there. So how do we come to a fervent and zealous spirit? There's work. 
There's effort. There's dying to the flesh. Christian, just very practically speaking, there just have to come these times we make decisions where I say, the TV's getting turned off and I'm going to read this sermon that I know is going to heal my soul. Like there does have, there do have to come these practical times. It's the alarms going off and I said it 30 minutes earlier in order to get up and read the Bible, but man, oh man, I'd really like to just lay here, put in the work. This is what it takes. We have to put the wood on the fire. We'll come back to actually some more of this next week when we look at the next exhortation, the beginning of verse 12, rejoicing in hope. Some helpful things I think we will look at. But let me bring us to an end here. Let me bring us to an end with just the the, the quickest of application. Christian first. Let me ask you to look at your diligence, your, your labor, your service, your zeal. Look at your diligence and ask the question, if an angel were evaluating my life, what would be the conclusion? What would be the conclusion? Let me give one example and then you can apply it to 999 other things. Parents, if an angel were to look at your efforts to influence, shape and mold, instruct, evangelize and disciple your children would that angel conclude that you are being diligent? Or does it just look like everybody else? And and I'm warning you that, and I bring that up for a specific reason, and part of what I'm trying to convince you is, you and I need to see that what is happening in American Christianity, what is normal, it's not working. It's not working. Normal Christian parenting isn't working. Normal Christian ways of approaching evangelism in the workplace, it's not working. Normal Christian ways of of engaging with the culture around them of, we'll just try not to stir any trouble, we'll just sit here. Not working. Normal isn't working. Part of what I'm trying to help us see here, when the Bible calls us to something, it means something. It doesn't just mean do what everybody else is doing. What everybody else is doing is not working. Christian diligence means something. It means it's above what is average. It means it's above what is normal. Fervent is above lukewarm. Serving the Lord means something, not serving myself or serving my money or simply serving my career. It means seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Christian, you know, the appeal, the exhortation is let's put our hand to the plow and work. Let's be fervent in spirit. And when we find that we have low points, because that's going to happen, let's work to come to zeal once again and let's serve the Lord. And then if you have not turned to Christ, we invite you, we invite you, but more importantly, the Lord Jesus invites you. Come and join this kingdom. Come become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven where you will live in the new world, the new creation forever and ever. But you have to hear the warning of scripture. The Bible says there is no eternal life unless you are right with him by turning to him in order to be saved. I know the world around you tells you that everybody's gonna be fine. That's not what Jesus says. His opinion is the only one that matters. He's the one you will stand before on the last day and determines eternity. You must have your sins forgiven.
you must be right with Him. You must be at peace with Him. The way that the Bible tells you to do that is not leave here and go try to start being good. Right now, you can be made right with God where you sit. The Bible says, in your heart, believe in the Lord Jesus. Cry out in prayer and ask Him to save you. Trust in Him and you will be made right with Him right now. And then God begins to transform our lives as He stirs our hearts to want to live in obedience. First comes forgiveness, then comes the change. Right now, if you have never turned to Christ like that, like we're explaining, turn to Him now. You can even pray and say, Lord, I don't know all the words to say, but I know I need to be saved, I need to be forgiven, and I need to be right with you. Help me. Pray to the Lord Jesus. Ask Him to save you. And then if you want to talk to somebody about that, would love to have a conversation with you. Find me before you leave. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you for your mercy. And we now ask that each of these exhortations that we have considered, we pray, oh God, that we will live. Help us as a church family, a church body. I pray that collectively we will live these things. I pray individually we will live, live them. Help us to show honor to one another. Help us to be diligent in our service to your kingdom. Help us to be fervent in spirit. I ask, O oh God, that you would breathe a fresh breath of air into our walk with you, O oh God, that you'll stir our worship once again. Give us grace, O oh Lord, as we dismiss, bless us as we head out to, uh, to, to live this week. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you. You guys are dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.